Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. we got a great show this week. We're talking to Rob Goldman, who's the author of the new book, The Sisterhood, The 99ers and the Rise of U.S. Women's Soccer. It's about nothing less than a cultural revolution that took place in this country in the late 90s, facilitated through the U.S. Women's National Soccer Team. It, it's a hell of a story. Um, also, I've got some choice words about the dire situation in China regarding tennis player Peng Shui. I've also got Just Stand Up and Just Sit Down awards and more. I've also got Jake's Takes. But first, Rob Goldman. So the book is The Sisterhood, The 99ers and the Rise of U.S. Women's Soccer. Tell us, please, um, in short order, like what the book's about and why you decided that this would be a project to which you would dedicate uh, a portion of your life. Okay, well, it's interesting, Dave, because... Like I just said, I'm old school. You know, I came came of age in the 70s, you know, and early 80s when, you know, women's sports were still kind of in its infancy. And I didn't, a lot of guys like me who played sports and I worked for the California Angels, you know, I was kind of oblivious to what the, what was going on as far as the women's game was. And, you know, it wasn't really until 2015 when, uh, the World Cup, and when Carly Lloyd hit the you know the midfield shot, I'll, I'll tell you a little story really briefly. Um, Please, I was not into the the soccer thing at all, and then my friend Kenny he dragged me down to the the goat at our local bar, and there was a show in the World Cup, and the Angel game was on the other screen, and so I, I just reluctantly went, okay, I'll go down, I'll watch the Angel game, have a beer, and then as the game as the the, the day <laughs> the day went on, I found myself gravitating towards the screen with a soccer game and i immediately mm-hmm. forgot about the angel game and you know that was the game when uh, kelly o'hara scored that goal in uh, uh against germany at the last minute and went ahead and I, I after that i was like intrigued then a couple days later carly lloyd won the game versus japan with that 50 uh, the midfield shot and i was totally hooked and this is a guy who's, you know, 50-plus years old. This is what's interesting. Never really attended a soccer game, never cared. And all of a sudden, I'm totally obsessed with it. It's like a drug, this, this women's game. And so I started researching and researching. And, and, you know, I just came off a big book with Nolan Ryan. I want to do something totally different. So I called Aaron Heifetz at U.S. Soccer and said, I'm interested in doing this book. He gave me, gave me a few emails. And uh, I was on my way. And my first my first batch of emails responded to except for the coach, Tony DeChico. And this is, this is getting pretty poignant here because I didn't know at the time Tony was dying of cancer. And so I'm, I'm doing these interviews with him and he was totally into it, totally generous and totally enthusiastic. And he's kind of giving me the learning curve as I went, but he oftentimes during our conversation, he just stopped in mid sentence and said, Rob, I got to go call me next week. I said, okay, well, that's kind of strange. And so one time I confronted him, hey, Tony, are you okay? Oh, yeah, I'm okay. I just got this old man's disease. So we did three or four of these, these, these sessions, and he told me to call him the next week. And I, 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 in between that week, uh, I was supposed to call him again. I heard that he had, from ESPN, that he had passed away. So the shock of this, here's a guy who's on his deathbed telling me his last, he wanted me to get the story, he wanted the story out there so bad that he, literally did it on his deathbed to me mm. and I was, I was crushed and you know, this wasn't an easy book to get through. And, uh, every time I had a stumbling block, I said, well, if Tony DeChico had the courage to just keep 
pounding through this and never letting me know that he was even sick. I have no excuse to not get this done. And so that's what motivated me. And I dedicated the book to him. Yeah. I mean, let's, let's stay on that subject of Tony DeChico then. I mean, what, what do you feel like he spoke to you about or revealed to you that perhaps were things that he hadn't revealed before? Well, it's interesting to get a little background on Tony DeChico. You know, he came in with Anson Dorrance as his uh, goalkeeper's coach in 1990, 1991. And he had never coached women. He had never coached anything beyond a junior high soccer team. And so he was thrown into this. And both him and Anson Dorrance, they had a learning curve. There was no template. There was no precedent coaching women. These guys had to learn as they went. And these guys were both macho guys coming off, you know, Tony was a baseball player and Anson, of course, was a, a, a great soccer player, but they, they didn't know how to coach women. And Tony said, there's a difference. You can't belittle them. You can't get in their face. You can't do it like coaching a bunch of guys like, uh, and April Heinrich said, you know, women bleed and, 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 and sweat for each other and suffer for each other. Guys don't, they don't do that. So both Tony and Anson, particularly Tony told me that, you know, there was a huge learning curve for him. And there were some stumbling blocks. I'll give you a little story briefly just to, to show this. In uh, 1995, there was a game in France. And uh, Mia Hamm and Tony were, Tony's on the sidelines, you know, throwing smack it at Mia. And she was giving it back, you know, you know, get, get your head in the game, Mia. Shut up, coach. Let us play. And they took that into, they took that fight into the locker room. And during halftime, you know, the players, they were, they were, they were, they were literally throwing chairs at each other. And they were uh, swearing, and there's just a big fight going on. Tony's Italian, and Mia's, Mia's pretty hot, got an edge to her. So it got to the point where Carla Overbeck, the, the captain, had to come in there and break it up. And then Tony wasn't going to play Mia the second half. But Carla says, no, Tony, we need her out there, the player. So they, they, he, played, he played Carla, and, and the next day they had a team meeting. You know, they, they met individually, and uh, Tony said he was dreading this meeting. Mia said she was dreading this meeting. But what Tony did, and this is, his, this is the key to his success, he thought about it. And he said to himself, I was wrong. You know, I don't, you don't confront your players. You don't get in their faces like that. And before Mia even got into the meeting, she, she, she said, Mia, I apologize. I was wrong. You were right. And that totally deflated the whole, the whole confrontation. And after that, Tony said Mia would do anything for him. He'd won her. He had won her trust, and he says the lesson learned was, you know, you coach you coach women differently. Mia's 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 uh, Mia was telling him, you know, coach us like men, but treat us like women, and that's a that's a quote that Tony gave me, and that's the kind of example of the learning curve both Anson and and and, and Tony came away with, and that's what I came away with with Tony it was it was he was it was a progressive move for him not just, you know, doing soccer tactics, but learning how to coach women. And, you know, mm. it's interesting because it's the women's game, but where would we be without Anson Dorrance and Tony DeChico, who probably were the only people really to coach those women at those times? You know, Anson pretty much formed the whole thing after his, his, his image. So it's some interesting stuff going on between underneath you know, the, the, the actual field play there's there's psychological games and there's there's stuff that these men these these men coaches had to learn and i think that's a pretty good example 
you mentioned the coaches. I mean, there's so many icons on that 1999 team. I mean, this epic, iconic team that has so, so many um, players on it who we still remember to this day over 20 years later. Who would you describe as the leader of that team? Without a doubt, 100% Carla Overbeck. And mm. I'll tell you this, Dave, without That's Carla Overbeck. Answer. Wow, thank you. Without, without Carla Overbeck, there is no 1999 Women's uh, the World Cup. Uh, according to everybody I talked to, from, from Brandy Chastain to Michelle Akers to Shannon McMillan to Tiffany Milbert, they all gravitated to Carla, her, her leadership. You know, she was a defensive player. She, she, she ran the back line. She wasn't a glamour player. She wasn't a, you know, a Mia Hamm or, you know, or a, or a, a Michelle Akers. She was, you know, you don't, superstars don't really emerge out of the back line. But on this team, without a doubt, and Tony, and, and Tony said too, yeah, Carla was my go-to. Like an example I just told you with, 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 with Mia breaking up that fight. They had so much respect for her and her likability was off the charts. And she led that team and off the field during that, you know, during training and on the field. And, and of course, she and Julie Foudy led the whole uh, campaign to get equal rights. But on the field, the go to was Carla Overbeck. They would go to the wall for her, you know, and uh, it was just a perfect match of, like you said, the icons. But of all the icons, more than Mia Hamm, more than Michelle Akers, more than Brandi Chastain. The person who led that team on the field, without a doubt, Carla Overbeck. How political was this team? How would you describe them? You mentioned uh, Overbeck leading on the field, and but also a fight for equality off the field, and trying to fight for some semblance of um, equity in terms of training facilities and things of that nature. Pay, of course. Who who were the? Um, the leaders of that more public off the field fight to make sure that the team could be all it could be. Give me, I'll give you a little background. First of all, they were kids when they first got in there. Most of the, most of the 99ers, they, you know, the core of them started in 87, Fawcett, uh, 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 Lily, uh, Ham. Uh, they came into the scene in 87. So they were basically kids. They, they grew up with the organization and they weren't interested in about, politics at that point when the, in, in the first five or six years because they were just struggling to survive and make the team and have the team survive. In 1996, Julie Foudy was debating whether or not to go to med school uh, in Stanford or continue on with her career and go to the Olympics. She struggled with it. She said, okay, I'm going to go with my passion and I'm going to go with the soccer, of course. But you got to understand Julie Foudy. She is a really intelligent, formidable woman. And uh, Lauren Gregg, the assistant coach, said, you know, she told me this was really something interesting. Soccer wasn't enough for her. She needed something intellectual to help drive her. She wasn't just a pure athlete. She was a great athlete, but she had an intellectual side to her. So in 1996, when this stuff with the Olympics, the Atlanta Olympics started coming down about, you know, fair treatment and uh, training facilities. It was Julie Foudy, 100%, who got in front of the wedge on that. She mm. was the one who started to rally the troops. And she learned that from Billie Jean King, who had this leadership uh, committee in, in New York that she, was at Ju she invited Julie to. And that's where Julie picked up her advocacy from, from directly from Billie Jean King. 
So Billie Jean handed it down to Julie. Julie ran with it. Uh, Carla gravitated to it. The older leadership, including including Mia and Joy Fawcett, they gravitated to it. But it was it was Julie who ramrodded all that all the stuff, and it started in '96, and she got a taste of victory with you know they 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 won a contract in '96, a big one, and from that it just it just kept feeding itself, and of course by '99, she was really leading the leading the troops, and she's carried it with her throughout even till today. She's a natural advocate, and. Mm-hmm. Without Julie Foudy at the helm, all the stuff you see with the modern team, you know, she led, she she set the table for that. So the leadership on this team, the on-field leadership, Julie shared it, but it was Carla. The off-field leadership, quote Tony, was 100% Julie Foudy. Carla on-field, Julie off-field, but the, the transcendent superstar was, of course, Mia Hamm. Uh, what made Mia so great? And can you give us a little insight into her personality? Mia's interesting, you know, because like you said, as far as spectacular burst of play, it was Mia Hamm. And she, of course, she became the face of the team because of her, her, her looks and her, her, her likability. But on the field, she wasn't the vocal leader of a Julie Foudy or a Carlo or a Carlo Overbeck. She led to quote uh, Christine Lilly, she led by example. And she led in the sense of, you know, when the bus stopped and the, the press corps were outside, Mia was outside and the rest of the team was waiting for her. And, you know, Mia missed a lot of the fun inside. But Mia Hamm, she has an edge. Well, she had an edge as she played. And uh, Lauren Gregg, the coach, assistant coach, says, you got it. You had to treat, treat Mia a little bit more let's say she was more sensitive. You had to be a little more careful with her because she can get going either way. She was, she was a little more finely tuned, like a, like a, like a racehorse. You know what I'm saying? Whereas Julie Foudy or Carla or Brad or Brandy, you could just, you know, play around with, but, 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 uh, as Tony found out, you had to be careful with Mia. So she wasn't the natural vocal leader, the cliche leader, but she led on the field. And, and when she first came up, she had trouble, you know, she, she didn't, she kept her head up. She didn't keep her head up. She had the trouble with the final pass, but she was so young that the, 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 the Anson Dorn stayed with her because he picked her up out of high school out of, out of Texas when she was 15. He put her in high school in Virginia, which was more soccer centric. And he literally walked her up the, the ladder. And those two have an incredible relationship, but, She's just more finely tuned than these other ones, and uh, she was had a different mentality. But as far as explosive play, as far as bringing eyes to the national team and attention to the national team, it was all Mia. Mm. Ironically, probably the best all-around player out there was Michelle Akers. But mm-hmm. Mia Hamm, as we know, she people gravitated to her. And as far as explosive play, it's probably been no one ever like her on the national team. Mm. Now, of course, this all culminates with the uh, incredible Rose Bowl game versus China. Uh, such an iconic day, 90,000 people in the stands. Um, I believe Bill Clinton in the audience as well, um, who was, of course, president at the time. What, what did you learn about that day that you didn't know before putting uh, this book together? Well, the, the 99 World Club, uh, Cup was an organic 
move made responsible by the players. You know, uh, uh, Marla Messing and, and Alan Rothenberg, U.S. Soccer, they got together and they they took a gamble. They saw that in 99, uh, 96, how they were selling, you know, the women's team was selling out stadiums. So they said, <clears throat> at first it was going to be a tournament back east, just kind of around Robin and, you know, just some just, local stadiums back east but they took a risk and they said we're gonna put this in the big stadiums and boy did they did they hit it and the secret was they had to keep winning and they did and by the time they got to uh, pasadena for the final against uh, against china there was this this incredible natural <laughs> uprising with uh, attention for the world cup it's like nothing's ever it, it was like so unique to the world and this is the key to this book. It wasn't just a soccer game. There was a cultural revolution going on. All of a sudden, women soccer players became fashionable. And it came and it emerged organically, and it came from the young people. If you go in the stands that day, there was millions of people, young kids, boys and girls, dressed up in Mia Hamm, you know, jerseys and face paint. It was organic. It was natural. And that was, was what hit me. It wasn't some organized thing. It was just some grassroots thing that the players were selling tickets to at their practices. It just emerged naturally. And that's why it's so rich. And that's why I love writing about this team because nothing like that has ever happened. I go back to the Cultural Revolution. Brandy Chastain hits that final goal in the, you know, in the, in the penalty shootout, rips off her shirt. That's, that puts a punctuation on the whole, on the whole deal. All of a sudden, women power, you know, we could take off our shirts, we could be ourselves. It was this culmination of athleticism, feminism, um, just this burst of courageous women, outrageous, outrageously talented and charismatic, charismatic, all come together in this July day in 1999. And we're still feeling the ramifications from that. Because from that day, you know, everything started like BC, AD, you know, they, they eventually got their league going, but, and they got, you know, acceptance, but it all stemmed from that game. And just the, you know, one side note, you know, they didn't even practice on the field before the game because it was a, the, the preliminary game was for third place going on. So they, they practiced in the Rose Bowl tunnel, kicking balls mm. off the concrete. And, you know, it, it just typifies the national team. They just adapted for whatever they did. But they didn't, even, they didn't even get to work out on the field before the game. They were doing it in the tunnel. So to answer your question, it was, it was a phenomenon. And uh, it was a cultural revolution. Don't think of it as a soccer game because it changed everything for women's sports and women's athletes in, the, in this country, I believe. Wow. Do you think that's appreciated today? I mean, the 99 team is iconic. We still remember so many of the players. A lot of them are still in the public eye or in the soccer world. Uh, but do you think the level of appreciation or understanding is there in terms of what they've meant, not just to women's sports, but to just the entire landscape of sports in the United States? I think for a certain generation, you know, maybe for our generation, but, you know, things change. And the, the, the little girls of today and the women of today, they don't, they hear of women, uh, uh, Brandy Chastain and Mia Hamm, but they don't necessarily put the two and two together. They, they just think that the soccer was always there for women. It wasn't. It came out of 99. So to answer your question, no, I don't think so. 
I think some of the players on the national team recognize it. I know Carly Lloyd did. I know Becky Sauerbrunn does because she's she reveres uh, um, Carla Overbeck. And, you know, because some of these, a lot of these, uh, you know, uh, I know for sure that uh, Becky, Megan Raponi, and Carly Lloyd attended the 99 World Cup. And they had the posters on their wall. And so they, they, they definitely appreciated it. But as far as the new generation, probably not. And that's why we write these books, you know, to let people know. But that's natural in history, you know. Does everybody recognize Jackie Robinson? Every people, you know, no. But, you know, you got to study your history a little bit. But that's why there's documentaries and movies and books. So people that's know. We do. Yeah, that's why we do these shows, right? Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Uh, the book, of course, is called Sisterhood. Has that sisterhood lasted until this day? Oh, yeah. That is consistent. You got to understand, like I told you before, Tony DeChico said, it's different out there. The women's women's sports, women players, they tend to care more about each other and how they're feeling. And they they're more sensitive to each other. Where a guy's team, you know, go out there and win and the coach yells at you, no big deal. Coach gets in your face on a women's team, it is a big deal. So there is a sisterhood. You have to you have to have each other's back to 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 excel in this in any in in, in the women's game. And uh yeah, I definitely feel there's a sisterhood, and I bet you if you ask the modern team too, that they would they would agree. But definitely in our in our group, because these 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 players in the '99 ers, like I said, they came together. Uh, Michelle was there as far as 80, as far back as '85. The other ones came around '87 through '91. You know, they, they they grew up together. They literally were their family. And uh, and, and back in the old days when women's sports you know, was kind of frowned upon in some, in some places, you know, they, they had to support each other. They had to, to get behind each other. And that's one of the reasons why Carla was such a great leader. She, she picked up on that, but to get an answer your question. Yes, there's definitely a sisterhood that runs all the way through 1985 when they played their first game all the way till now, I believe. That's amazing. Is, is, and is there anything that we are missing in terms of discussing the book, issues in the book that you want to raise uh, before we we wrap it up? I mean, it's it's your book. I want to give you the chance to uh, express what you think is some of the enduring thoughts or lessons that you want people to take away. Well, again, I, I reiterate, you know, look at look at the 99ers as a, and, and the World Cup and everything that, as a cultural revolution, not just a soccer team. These people changed the landscape, not just for women, but, you know, girls and also for, for guys. Like, look at me. I'm 50-plus years old. I never intended a soccer game. Next thing I know, I'm writing a book about it. Next five, five years of my life. I mean, these are – this team, uh, the scope of what they did as far as – whenever you drive by – I don't know where you live, but where I live, wherever I go, there's a soccer field. You know, there's a there's a play field, and there's soccer players out there more so than baseball or basketball. Sure. Credit the '99 world, you know, the '99ers. They started that. They started that whole transition that women's sports are acceptable. Therefore, maybe women are more acceptable. You see where I'm getting at? As the cultural mm -hmm. revolution, it's more than just soccer, and that's what drew me to their story and the arc of their story. And that's why I wrote this book. 
Mm. And one last question, because I, I really do ask everybody on the podcast this question. Uh, what music animated you as you wrote this? Uh, either music that you listened to while you were writing, music that you might have listened to as you wound down, music that made you feel connected to the subject. Give, give us a musical uh, soundtrack to the book, if you would. Well, you think it'd be rock and roll, but I'm more of a singer-songwriter kind of guy from the 70s. And I play a little guitar, and I, you know, I, I just love that. And so one night I was, while I was writing this book, I was playing around on, on YouTube, and I, I ran into the Carpenters. And when I was like, growing up, they were kind of like, oh, bubblegum, you know, lightweight. But it wasn't. I mean, I'm l- listening to the Richard Carpenter's uh, production and, and Karen Carpenter's voice. And it was a strong woman's voice. And therefore, totally, this book was written with the Carpenters as the backdrop. It's interesting that you asked that because wherever I went, I had the Carpenters going because uh, Karen Carpenter signified a strong woman's voice and the perfection of Richard Carpenter's production exemplified the coaching of Tony DiCicco and Anson Dorrance. So to answer your question, 100% the Carpenters. And if you you haven't heard them, go, go pick up and you'll go pick up an album because their music holds up. It was just like the 99ers, it was told this, the test of time. Excellent. Well, Rob, thank you so much for joining us here on the Edge of Sports podcast. Really appreciate the time. Dave, I appreciate you reaching out and help spread the word. And have a really Absolutely. good day. I love love cultural revolutions. So oh. this uh, love examining them. So this is fantastic. Thanks, my friend. You take care. You too. We'll be back after a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. We'll be back right after this, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe. And please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now I've got some choice words. Okay, look, the question is four words and it needs to be answered. Where is Peng Shui? The Chinese tennis star has gone missing after publicly accusing China's former vice premier Zhang Gaoli of sexual assault earlier this month. The three-time Olympian and one-time top-ranked tennis star in doubles has not been seen since. Chinese authorities move swiftly to silence Peng Shui. After she made her accusations on the social media platform Weibo, censors scrubbed her posts within 30 minutes. Then an email supposedly written by the tennis star emerged this week stating, I've just been resting at home and everything is fine. The email was met with wide skepticism. Even the World Tennis Association cast doubt on its legitimacy. Steve Simon, the chairman of the WTA, said that the message raises further concerns. He said, I have a hard time believing that Peng Shui actually wrote the email we received or believes what is being attributed to her. Now, the World Tennis Association surely felt compelled to respond because an outcry was mounting throughout the tennis world. 
tennis megastars like Naomi Osaka, Serena Williams, Andy Murray, and the legendary Billie Jean King have voiced concern for Peng Shui's safety under the hashtag, where is Peng Shui? The Women's Tennis Association issued a blistering statement saying they would pull out of China entirely, a decision that would cost them hundreds of millions of dollars if Peng Shui does not emerge. They also said, we continue to call for independent and verifiable proof that Peng Shui is safe and that her sexual assault allegation will be investigated fully, fairly, and without censorship. If not, the WTA is prepared to do what is right. Yet one group has been conspicuously silent, and that's the International Olympic Committee. We are only 70 days or so from the Winter Games in Beijing, so the IOC is uniquely positioned to demand safety for one of its own. Instead, it issued a weak-kneed statement asserting that, quote, experience shows that quiet diplomacy offers the best opportunity to find a solution for questions of such a nature. Then the IOC added, this explains why the IOC will not comment any further at this stage. My God. This ethical abdication by the IOC is absolutely breathtaking. As the Beijing Olympics loom, it is effectively choosing silence. Once again, the IOC is hiding behind a thin veil of political neutrality. Yet as we see all too often, this neutrality of the IOC means acting in favor of those in power state not willing to brook dissent. Instead of a stance that could make a difference, we get exhibit 7,492 that the IOC is a craven organization more interested in protecting its power and wealth than the many ideas around freedom and human rights that are harbored in the Olympic Charter. Zheng Bao, a Chinese human rights lawyer living in exile in the United States, told the nation, Peng Shui has elevated China's Me Too movement to a high level because the alleged abuser is a top leader. Beijing is trying to silence her, including fabricating an email. But it just increased the skepticism and international concern for her safety, which can be another reason besides the human rights abuse in Hong Kong and the Uyghur genocide to boycott the Beijing Winter Olympics. What is particularly ironic is the very slogan of the IOC is athletes first. Its real watchword is punish athletes when they get political and ignore athletes when disappeared by the Chinese state. Olympic athletes looking ahead to Beijing 2022 cannot help but read the IOC's inaction as a grim foretaste of what might happen at the Olympics if an athlete speaks out. It's all too easy to imagine an athlete speaking out for Tibet, Uyghur Muslims, Peng Shui, and finding themselves in custody. One now doesn't need to wonder what the IOC would do if faced with such a challenge. Looking forward to the Beijing Games, Sophie Richardson, the China director at Human Rights Watch, told the nation, the bottom line, no one is safe. Not the famous or ordinary people, not the rich or the poor, no one is safe when the unaccountable power holders are angry. She added, how much worse a sign do we need ahead of the 2022 Beijing Winter Games that Chinese state authorities appear complicit in disappearing a Chinese former Olympian? The fear is that the athletes will not be safe in Beijing. The reality is that if there is an incident of any kind, the IOC is sending signals that it won't do a damn thing. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. 
Hey everybody out there, this is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports Podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now it's time for the part of the show we call Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down. Sit your ass down. Just Sit Your Ass Down is quite not related to sports. It's just anybody and everybody who's celebrating the release of right-wing spree killer Kyle Rittenhouse. You can get the gas face, and that's all I want to say about it. Uh, Also, you will not chill dissent, even though that's what you want to do. And just, you know, be careful what you wish for. Uh, the Just Stand Up Award. Stand up! Uh, actually, it goes to the NBA players who fought for the clemency of, of Julius Jones, of the commutation of his death sentence in Oklahoma. Uh, a lot of us thought Julius Jones, who is on death row for a crime that he did not commit, a murder that he did not commit, uh, horrible legal representation. I mean, just a case of a legal lynching that was about to take place. And people like Blake Griffin, Trey Young, Steph Curry, Russell Westbrook, hell, Baker Mayfield uh, stepped in on his behalf. Baker Mayfield, of course, who was such a star in Oklahoma um, as a quarterback. Um, so, And also a ton of other Oklahoma-based athletes stepped in, too. Now, why did this particular case seem to generate a shock through the ranks of professional athletics, or at least a sector of professional athletics? Man, I do not know, but I really am glad that it did because it shows that, you know, this fight against police violence is not just a fight against police. It's the fight against an entire system of racial injustice, uh, an entire system that is absolutely drenched in reeks of white privilege, which we saw in the Kyle Rittenhouse case. But you also see it in Julius Jones being on death row and the need to actually fight, beg and plead just to make sure he's not executed by the state. Well, Julius Jones has lived to fight another day. And one of the reasons he has is the intervention of athletes. Uh, So, I mean, this is something that we need to hold up and this is something that we need to recognize. We are back with the part of the show that everybody emails me about where my son Jacob Zyron picks the latest NFL games. It's called Jake's Takes. We're in week 11 of 18. Jake, how you doing, sir? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. I mean, we're about to hit the holiday season. You know, eat some turkey. Feeling good. I'm feeling very good. I bet you are. You like that turkey. So first and foremost, uh, Jacob, I want to let everybody know that we're recording this on Saturday, and I am here to bear witness for the fact that you picked the Patriots to beat the Falcons on Thursday night, so you're already 1-0 and on the week. Congratulations. Thank you very much. So let's start picking for uh, the Sunday games and the Monday game, and we'll see how you do this week, okay? Okay. Um, by the way, how you doing so far on the season? Well, last week was not a good week. All right, I went 6-6-1, six, six, and one, which is... Jeez, not a very Jacob Zyron week. But I'm still 95-53-1, which is a good record. Yeah, I'll take that. I'll take that. But we want to get you to that 2-1 to one ratio. Mm-hmm. You know, I know that's important to you. It's important to me, too. And I man, mean, it's very important to me. Like, <laughs> I've gotten two bet the house 
picks in a row wrong. All right, well, let's try to break that streak. Okay, so Sunday, first game of the week, your Baltimore Ravens against the Chicago Bears uh, in Chicago. Who do you like? I mean, every single game this year that I've picked the Ravens, they've either had it really, really close or they've lost, which gets me really upset because I really don't want to pick the Ravens now, but I'm still going to pick them because it's a safe pick. It's a smart pick. This should be my bet-the-house pick, but I'm not going to go that far. I'll pick the Baltimore Ravens. Good call. In Chicago. Good call. An interesting game. The Green Bay Packers against uh, Kirk Cousins and the Minnesota Vikings in Minnesota. Big rivalry game. And I was shocked to read that Cousins in his career is 3-3 three and three against uh, Mr. Rogers. That actually shocked me. Who do you like in this game? Who I like in this game? Well, the Packers, they're a really good team, and they're also all going to win this game. And I think I'm actually going to choose this as my bet-the-house game because, you know, it is in Minnesota and all, but it, it, this is the Green Bay Packers we're talking about. You know, they're, they're kind of hot. They're 8-2. and two. This is a 4-5 and five Vikings team that likes to choke in the fourth quarter and in overtime, and this is going to be a good Packers win. Wow, you and I disagree. I've never disagreed with you on a bet the house game before. What what an exciting moment for our listenership. Uh, the Colts are in Buffalo. Who do you like? Colts are on Buffalo. This could have been my bet the house game. I'm still going to pick the Bills, even though the Bills they they only have one more win than the Colts because they're only they're only six and three. The Bills. I'm not going to say only like that isn't good. They they are going to win this game though. I mean they they had a good win against the Jets last week. Colts are kind of hot, you know. They're they're a really good team, but I'm still gonna pick the Bills. It's so funny because the Bills might be the best six and three team in the history of the NFL. I mean, Probably. that record does not really match their talent at all. Uh, the lot, unless we're talking about this team being so much better than their record, the Lions going up against the Cleveland Browns, both teams with records that don't really fit their talent to me but the Lions this week are not starting Jared Goff they're starting someone named Alex Boyle no they're starting Tim Boyle Tim Boyle who's Alex Boyle I don't know I don't know I think he's some dude I went to school with or something so Tim Boyle and the Lions against this Cleveland Browns defense and I mean Miles Garrett who do you like I don't really need to talk about this one too much it's going to be the Browns in a very big win yep yeah no need to talk about that I mean come on this is going to be the game to talk about yeah Washington coach by Ron Rivera travels to Carolina to face the quarterback who Ron Rivera had a very close Super Bowl relationship with, a guy you might have heard of by the name of Cameron Newton. Who do you like? I like the Carolina Panthers in this game. Oh, me too. I like the Carolina Panthers in this game because I really like Cam I really like Cam Newton and I really like that Carolina team. You know, they made some big trades at the trade deadline. <clears throat> they had some really big trades at the trade deadline because they wanted to get that secondary better because they want to be in playoff contention. And and if they want to be in playoff contention, they're going to have to win this game. And I'm going to take them at home. I mean, I think absolutely positively Cam is like pure energy. Like he, he just it's unbelievable. Taylor Heineke, not so much. All right. Houston and Chase Young out for the season. I mean, he hasn't had a great year, but that has to be a consideration. Uh, the Houston Texans, we can do this one quickly. Go to Tennessee to play the Titans. This is going to be a Titans win. Yep. Moving on. San Francisco 49ers play the very feisty Jacksonville Jaguars. Very feisty Jacksonville Jaguars. are still going to lose this game, though. Okay. You know, it's going to be the, a nice, nice, nice 49ers win. 
Okay, uh, the, the Miami Dolphins travel to New York to face Joe Flacco and the New Jersey Jets. Who do you like? This is going to be Joe Flacco and the New Jersey Jets win Uh-oh. after this Sunday because Joe Flacco is going to get the Jets their third win of the season against a Dolphins team who just beat the Ravens. Yeah, because this is a trap game right here. This is a trap game for the Dolphins, and they're going to lose this game. Wow, that is a daring pick. But what a revenge game that would be for Flacco to beat the team that beat his former team, the Ravens. There's a bit of a revenge factor there. Um, I actually like the Dolphins in that game, but hey, that's okay. That's our second disagreement, but that's okay. We we can disagree. Uh, the New Orleans Saints travel to Philly. I think we're going to disagree about this to play the Eagles. This is going to be a Philly win. Me too. Yay! It's going to be a Philly win. Jalen Hurts, you know, he's been good this year. They, 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 they... I think they can make a playoff push, and I think they will make a playoff push. I think they're going to be the seventh seed. Wow. And who would have thought that at the start of the year? Um, not I. Uh, the, the stumbling Cincinnati Bungles against the, the stumbling, stumbling Las Vegas Raiders. Who do you like? I like the Bengals in this game. You know, Joe Burrow, Joey B, Jamar Chase. This is going to be a good win for the Bengals. This is going to be a win that's going to put them back on track to try and make a Trying to make a playoff push. And the Raiders are in disarray. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Dallas Cowboys, this is a lot of game people of are saying week. this is the game of the week. Um, mm-hmm. I know who I think is going to win this game, and I feel it kind of strongly, but it's the Dallas Cowboys. This is what makes it tricky because the Cowboys are obviously, I think, the better team on paper, but they're traveling to Kansas City to face a Chiefs team that seems to be getting its mojo back. Who do you like? This is a Chiefs team that's getting their mojo back, and they have a better roster on paper, in my opinion, and they're going to win this football game because Patrick Mahomes, he's finally getting on track. I I really like the Chiefs here in a win. Getting them, I think they'll probably be a three seed. Wow. Let's see what happens. I don't know, man. The Cowboys are a better team. We'll see what happens. Mm. Uh, the Cardinals, totally banged up by injuries, playing the Seahawks, who just got shut out for the first time in Russell Wilson's career. They did get shut out. And I don't care if Kyler's playing. I don't care if he's not. They're not going to win this football game. They're not going to win this football game. And you know why? Because Russ, Russ is out for redemption. He just lost 17-0 to against a Green Bay Packers team. And I, I picked the Seahawks last week, and it's kind of discouraging to see them put up zero points yeah, and then pick them again. Yeah, But I am going to pick them again because this is going to be an upset win because this, this is a rival. You know, last year, last year they had a lot of really fun games, and this is going to be another fun game, but the Seahawks will come out on top at home. Wow. Hey, Jacob, mm. if you look in a mirror, you know what you might see? What? A broken clock. Because you're saying the same thing about the Seahawks, and they're going to burn you again. Pittsburgh Steelers play against the L.A. Chargers. Who do you like? Who do I like? I like the L.A. Chargers in this game at home. No, I don't. That's a lie. I like the Steelers. Wow. Because their schedule is really tough, and I think they've realized that. So they're going to need to get the wins that are going to be up for grabs. And, you know, um, it just got released maybe 30 minutes ago that Big Ben is going to play this Sunday. And that's really big because I was actually thinking about taking the Chargers in my bet the house game wow. with with Mason Rudolph starting. But now that Big Ben's starting, that's actually that's a big that's a big gap in in how good they are. That's yeah. a big gap in like chemistry, all that stuff. And they're gonna win this football game on Sunday night. Wow! So you're taking the Steelers. 
while we disagree about that. Um, and then this last one feels like the weirdest kind of trap game in the world, but it's not really a trap game because the New York Giants are facing a reeling Tampa Bay Buccaneers team that's um, kind of embarrassed itself in recent weeks. I don't so, know why. I don't either. Remember, I don't you know said why, but I have a Buccaneers... weird, I have a weird feeling about this game. Yeah, I do too. That Daniel Jones, Jones. is going to come out on top with his Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Danny Dimes with his Tampa Bay Buccaneers with the New York Giants team that has actually they they've kind of picked it up these past couple weeks. You know, they're like three and six now. They're like one and five. So they've been doing better lately, and this is going to be a win for them. I feel like. Wow. Amazing picks. Um, a reminder that you and I both thought the Buccaneers had a shot at going undefeated this year. Yes. And now we're talking about them losing at home to Danny Dimes. Yes. That's quite a distance to travel. Um, but, hey, that's why we enjoy this sport. One of the reasons is the unpredictability of it all. You know, that's where that expression comes from on any given Sunday. And the other expression, that's why they play the game. Well, Jake, happy Thanksgiving to you. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy holidays. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. We'll be back right after this. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. Thank you so much to Rob Goldman for coming on. The book, once again, is called The Sisterhood, The 99ers and the Rise of U.S. Women's Soccer. Thanks so much to Jake for coming on to give his takes. And a big thanks to the producer of this podcast, David Tigabu. Uh, for everybody out there listening, please mask up. Please stay frosty. Happy holidays. We are out of here. Peace. <laughs>